If you have your Bibles this morning, open up Romans chapter 16. I told you last week we'd get back into it. Romans 16 for 61 weeks now. Sermon 61, we've been going through the book of Romans, a life transformation. And the guy who wrote this, Paul, that's kind of where we got up with, came up with our title. Here's a guy, his life was so transformed, listen, they even had to change his name because people would not believe what Christ had done in his life. And so 61 weeks, you know, we, we've taken a couple of weeks off and I've been gone and so we, we've been in this for almost two years now. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll finish the book of Romans. We'll take, uh, we'll take a, a few weeks off and do some other things. And then in January, I'm excited, we're going to preach through the book of John. I've never done that verse by verse before. And uh, I'll just say this, if you thought Romans was long, you wait till we get in John. And some of you old timers remember about 12 years ago, we walked through the book of Luke. That was a short book compared to John. Um. But the Apostle Paul, what a great, great author, and what a great message that he's been sharing with us through the book of Romans. Um, it's just kind of interesting, Dr. Vance Havner, that great preacher. I don't know if you're familiar with the author Norman Vincent Peale, but he wrote a famous book, The Power of Positive Living. And it's a good book. Now, it, don't tell you, it doesn't tell you how to get to heaven. But it's a good book. It talks about the way you, that, you know, your attitude and your perspective on life and all that kind of stuff. Well, they asked Dr. Vance Habner, that great preacher one time, to kind of compare and contrast Norman Vincent Peale with the Apostle Paul. Um, undoubtedly, he didn't care much for Norman Vincent Peale. Because here's what Dr. Habner said. <laughs> I find Peale to be appalling and Paul to be appealing. Well, I hope you found Paul to be appealing but if it's worked the way in your life as it has mine, as we've been walking through the book of Romans, you know, kind of kind of knocks me, knocks me to my knees every now and then, gets my focus up on the heavens. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not who I used to be. And thank you, Jesus, I'm not who I'm going to be. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life, the transformation. And uh, it's been a rich, rich book, hopefully, for you as well. But today, Paul is going to be talking about some of his friends. He's going to be sharing a few thoughts about these friends and uh, it would be easy for us to skip the first part of chapter 16, but you know, we don't do that. We deal with every single verse because we believe every single verse in the Bible is profitable to us. And so today, it's the first part, we're going to be talking about some of his friends, and uh, I think you're going to learn a lot about the church and the Christian life, reading the personal comments that he makes. But the first thing that he's going to tell us is this, treasure your spiritual family. Treasure your spiritual family. It's what he does in the first 15 verses. He's going to be talking about his spiritual family and his friends. 27 names, and I will tell you, some of which are very hard to pronounce. I might get one or two wrong, so save your emails. I appreciate it. You know, I, I've read and I've listened, and I, and I know the right way to pronounce them. Just sometimes this thick rural Tennessee tongue doesn't do me justice. 21 positive descriptions that we have. So here's what we're going to do a little different than we normally do. Today, just keep your Bible open. 
Now, we're going to systematically work our way through the first part of chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. The scripture will be on the screens. And if you don't own a Bible, come by the Welcome Center before you leave today. Had a gentleman come after the first service and just said, hey, can I get a Bible? I'm like, absolutely, man. You've heard me say this before. We'll flat bankrupt this church giving out Bibles. So you come out there. We'd be happy to give you one. Uh, but today, let's look at our text, and let's meet his friends as he gives some positive affirmation here. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself." Now, he talks about her being a, a sister there. You know, now just, just understand, it's not, she's not a physical uh, sister. She's not a biological sister. He's talking about his sister in Christ. In verse uh, 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila. If you've studied the book of Acts, you've read about them. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners. If you've looked at my Bible, if you did, you would see I've written all these pronunciations out. We could just say one hard name after one hard name, and that would be appropriate, but I will do my best. My countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. I love that. In Christ. In Paul's writings, you're never going to hear him say, I am a Christian. Nothing wrong with that. But he understood the essence of being in Christ. Let me stop and think about that. In Christ. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Hey, hey, if at your death, if when they're doing your funeral, if all they said of you is he or she, they were in Christ, nothing better could be said. In Christ. Christ has changed me. Christ has moved. And so here he says, I thank God in verse 7 that they were in Christ before I was. You say, why does he thank God that they were in Christ before him? Because they're probably praying for his salvation. God do a work for Saul of Tarsus. God do the impossible. God do the miraculous. They had a powerful witness for Christ. Pick up with me in verse 8. Uh, Greet Amphias, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryposa, who have labored in the Lord, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Now, how many of you named your daughters Tryphena or Tryphosa? No, these were sisters. 
And uh, he's kind of doing a little play on words here because tryphena means dainty, tryphosa means delicate. And so he's saying, greet dainty and delicate who work up a sweat for Jesus. You don't really think of people being dainty and delicate working up a sweat. So he's kind of having, having fun here. Look in verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. You're like, who's Rufus? You guys remember when Jesus, when he was carrying the cross to Gethsemane? Or not Gethsemane, Calvary. You remember when he had been beaten and he had been scourged and he had been whipped and his, his body physically was just broken? And you remember what happened? There was a guy that they told, we want you to carry the Christ, or to carry the cross for Jesus Christ. And we know that that guy's name was Simon of Cyrene. He's the one who carried the cross. Well, you go over to the book of Mark, and Mark is laying this out. If you understand the audience that Mark is writing to, you understand why he goes into a little bit more detail there. And basically what he is saying is, Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. So when he says, greet Rufus here, he's saying, hey, greet, greet, greet my friend who's been very beneficial, helpful for me. He's the son of Simon of Cyrene. So here's what I believe. Simon of Cyrene probably got saved, went home and told his wife. Notice here what Paul says about, about his wife, about Rufus's mother. He says, greet my mom too. She wasn't his physical, biological mom, but Paul had been so influenced by her in his faith that he referred to her as his mother. And I thank God in my 30 years of ministry, you know, God does that. All the places that I've been, I've never had the opportunity of being my own mother's pastor. But what God does is God brings and he has brought godly women, godly mothers in my own life to mother me. Some, some of which are in our church right now. And so that's what Paul is saying. This is Rufus, right? And in his brother Alexander, Alexander, when he gets over to the book of Ephesus or Ephesians, he's talking about he also helped out Paul. This is a great, great picture, guys, of the powerful influence that a father has over his household. And that a mother, listen to me, a mother has not only over her kids biologically, but her spiritual children as well. Don't underestimate the power that you have for those of you that are in Christ, okay? Look there with me, verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, uh, Nerys and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Praise the Lord, the hard names are done. Why are we talking about this? Because here is this man of God who's making a point to express his appreciation for his spiritual family. Let me ask you, when's the last time you did that? Do you treasure your spiritual family? 
When is the last time that you, you, you took the moment to, to thank that spiritual mother or that spiritual father or someone that is sown into your life, someone that modeled before you what it meant to be in Christ, someone who labored in prayer over your salvation, someone that poured into you to be able to hold you accountable, someone that loved you enough to graciously give you a swift kick in the behind when you needed it. Paul is here and Paul is saying, I am so thankful for my spiritual family. And he could have continued on. He was just writing to those that were there in the church at Rome. Please make sure that you greet these individuals. They, they've meant so much to me in my walk of faith. That you and I are to make a point to say good things about those that are in the body of Christ. I appreciate you. I thank God for you. I love you. How often do you say good things to other people about your spiritual family? Treasure your spiritual family. You say, why? Because it's a good thing to do. And it's very positive and it's very encouraging. You say, well, when they get to heaven, they'll know. Don't wait till they get to heaven. You go ahead right now. There is power in your words. And there is power in expressing that appreciation to those that God has used in your spiritual life. Then look in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now our, our young single adults just perked up a little bit. The churches of Christ greet you. Now here's what I've always heard. I've always heard, hey, the holy kiss, that was cultural of the day, that they greeted each other with a holy kiss. But really, when you research it, that's not what the Greeks and the Romans did. They were highly influenced by Stoicism, which meant this. Don't touch anybody. We're surely not going to touch a newcomer. We're not going to touch a stranger. I mean, I mean, they expressed appreciation. The holy kiss that he's talking about here would have been something that would have happened between intimate family members, you know, close family members. We're talking about a mother with her children or a husband and wife or grandparents and grandchildren. It, it, it's intimacy between the closest of family. You say, are, are you telling me that then I'm not supposed to highlight that and go around saying, look at what the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss and just go ahead and do what Paul tells me to do. I wouldn't encourage that. I, you know, it might work once or twice. I'd say about the third time, you'd probably get slapped across your face and fourth time, we're going to tase you and uh, outlaw you for a few weeks around this place. You say, well, then what is he trying to say here? Here's what he is saying. You ought to treat each other as family. In the church as family yeah the wrong here the romans the church at rome i mean stop thinking you've seen these old roman movies where they would walk up and how would they greet each other they would say greetings and they would shake forearms you remember that have you seen that handshaking i mean why don't we shake hands today all the way back to like bc times man they started shaking hands because one would come up and he would open his hand to show i don't have a dagger and the other one would come up and open his hand i don't have a dagger either and they would shake hands indicating hey i'm not going to slit your throat 
The point he's making to them, and I believe it's the point he's making to us, that we have a relationship within the body of Christ, that we are family, that we are family and children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ, that we don't treat each other like strangers, we don't treat each other like newcomers, we don't, we don't treat each other like people do out there in the world, we're family. And the sad fact is there are a great number of us that, that, that come in here and you sit and unless you, you, you turn around, you don't even know who's sitting in front of you. You don't know who's sitting behind you. You've never spoken to them and you don't, might not even care about who's sitting in front or behind you. He's saying that within the body of Christ, there ought to be a level of intimacy because we're family. That we don't just come and say, you know what, I'll give an hour, 15, an hour, 30, and, uh, you know, I've come and I've watched church. Understand, guys, if all you do in this church body is what happens inside this room, you are a spectator of this church. You're not a participant or a family member of this church. Oh, it's quiet in here. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there ought to be an intimacy within the family of God, right? The body of Christ. That we ought to spur one another along. That we ought to pray for one another. That we ought to do life together with one another. And so I would just say this. Why don't you go ahead and talk to somebody? Not right now. Give give me a little bit. Talk to them, though. Talk to them. Get to know them. Now, we're going to turn the tables completely, and some of you are glad we're leaving that one, from treasuring your spiritual family. Look in verse 14, in verse, or not verse 14, verse 17. He talks to us about tackling your spiritual foes. And I want to make it clear that you understand this. The reason why I chose the word tackle naturally starts with a T. But I chose the word tackle not insinuating that physically you would tackle someone. The reality is, if you went to the University of Miami, you couldn't tackle anybody if you wanted to. (laughs) Kick them while they're down, folks. No, it means deal with it. How do we deal with it? How do we handle spiritual foes? Look at verse 17. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Now, let's just stop right there. Can I say this? That in the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, he wrote the book of Corinthians. The church here, you'll find this hard to believe, even the church here at Highland Park, in every single church in Bay County, you are going to find folks that are objectionable, knuckleheads, difficult people who cause problems within the church. And this verse says what to do with them. Avoid them. Avoid them. Well, let's put it contextually in place. Look at verse 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. 
And then he comes to verse 20. A lot of folks sit there with verse 20 just like they're finishing the book and they just skim over it. But man, there is a great promise of God found in verse 20. If you've never highlighted this, highlight this. Look at what he says in verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So what has he just told us there when it comes to dealing with are tackling our spiritual foes. Well, I'm going to look at it from two different ways when it comes to who our spiritual foes are. First of all, recognize and avoid troublesome people. They're always there, folks. There are always people there who want to argue with you. They want to complain about this. They want to complain about that. They want to nitpick about this. The Bible says, don't kick them out of your church. The Bible doesn't say be mean to them. The Bible says just don't fellowship with them. Avoid them. Elsewhere, Paul writes about this. Writes about it over in the book of Titus. Can I tell you a good description of the book of Titus? A church operations manual. And in Titus chapter 3 I want you to hear what he says. This is in verse 9. It'll be on the screens. Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Have you ever known people that what they want to do is split theological hairs? You ever known people that they've kind of set up their own little camp? They, they kind of have their own little soapbox, right? They, they, they pick some little obscure theology or doctrine or, you know, maybe not even out of the Word, maybe necessarily out of a book they read or a preacher. Remember, I've told you this before, that if you've ever read a book written on the things of God or if you ever find yourself listening to a preacher that starts the sermon this way, I'm going to show you something something that no one else has ever seen in the Bible. Get up and go home. But there are folks that they want to split these theological hairs and they just want to they just want to have these arguments about little points of doctrine and they try to get you mad and the Bible says don't do that guys. That is unprofitable. That is useless. Keep reading. There in Titus 3. Look at what it says. Warn a divisive person once, okay? So here we go. We're going to warn you the first time. You got that? All right. That's once. Your warning. Then it says, then warn him a second time. There's your second warning, okay? After that, have nothing to do with them. Some people, for the sake of their point of view are willing to destroy the unity of the church. How do you deal with them? Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them. What does that mean? In other words, he's saying, don't listen to them. Don't don't, don't give them an audience. You say, well, I thought that we were obligated to hear a person out. Are you kidding me? Who told you we're obligated to hear a person out? When what they're saying is not consistent with Christian speech and biblical doctrine, just go ahead and close your ears. 
And I'll go ahead and stop and say this, and I thank God that we serve a church where I don't believe this happens, and if it does, it doesn't happen to me, and for those who tell you, you don't tell me, so thank you for that. But if someone is there and someone is tearing down the church, or someone is there and they're tearing down the pastor or the staff or they're tearing down deacons or they're tearing down leadership or they're tearing down teachers or, or the reality of the matter is they're tearing down anybody that's a part of the family of God. They're tearing down another believer. Then the way that you should respond is, I don't want to hear it. I'm closing my ears. You say, why is that important? Because even out of some misguided sense of courtesy, our listening to them will usually or sometimes indicate to them that we agree with what they're saying. And while they're do what we're doing is we're giving them another opportunity to vent their poison. And I, I'll go ahead and add this this morning. If they'll talk to you about someone else, mm, They'll talk to someone else about you. You say, how do we respond? How about we respond biblically? What do you do if somebody comes up to you and wants to say terrible, disruptive things about someone that is in the church? Here's what you say. Well, now hang on right there. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you got something to get somebody, you don't go to other people. You go to that person. Don't bring it to me. That's what you say. Don't bring it to me. Take it right to that person. You know what? Matter of fact, I'll even help you. If you'd like, I'll help set up an appointment, a time where, where, where you guys can meet and you can talk through this and, and, and you, can, you can address your concern with them. Usually what will happen is they'll say, no, 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 I don't want to talk to them. No, thank you. But that's what the Bible says. You recognize and avoid them. And then, and then this is the second spiritual foe that I think. You realize and you declare victory over Satan. So here we are, the spiritual family, right? If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we're in the family of God together. Just because somebody has life does not mean that they are a part of the family of God. They are created by God. But the only thing that makes you a part of the family of God is that you are in Christ. So you're in Christ, I'm in Christ. Spiritually, we're family together. And I treasure my spiritual family. I rejoice. I thank God for those that he has brought into my life, right? That has helped me, that has me on that has helped me walk according to him matured me in my faith that maybe even shared the gospel with me that maybe even gave resources and sacrificed time and and all kinds of things so that I might hear the good news of Jesus Christ I thank God for that but then I also realize that there are foes out there and I'm gonna I'm gonna recognize that and I'm going to avoid them and then I'm going to realize and declare victory over Satan. Look in verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan. Now notice Paul does not say under my feet. He does not even say under Christ's feet. He doesn't even say under God's feet. What does he say? Under your feet. Shortly. The word crush there means to abolish. The word crush there means to render harmless. Now, the word shortly there, it doesn't mean that it's about to happen soon in the future. The word shortly there means that it's going to happen instantaneously. It means that once it happens, it'll happen rapidly. 
Now, friend, I've come this morning to tell you that even though you may think Satan is a terrible adversary, and he is pretty bad, we have already won the victory over him. That he has already been destroyed. That Satan's destruction was predicted and prophesied about from the very, very beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, it was paradise. Why was it paradise? Well, look back to verse 19 in our text. They were wise about good and they were simple concerning evil. Do you know why it was paradise? They didn't even know evil existed. Everything that was in their life was good. And you know how the story goes. Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he comes to Eve and he says, Eve, God has said that you can't eat from that tree. And the reason why he doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because when you eat of that tree, you know, listen now, you will know good and evil and you will be like God. Eve ate. Adam ate. And suddenly they were no longer simple about evil. Suddenly, they were no longer innocent when it comes to evil. They knew what evil was. What is the very first thing that happened when their eyes were opened? We're naked. And they were ashamed. You know what this tells us, guys? The essence of sin is self-consciousness. Now, now, walk with me here. Think about it. I don't think Adam looked at Eve and said, Eve, you're naked. I don't think Eve looked at Adam and and she said, Adam, you're naked. I think Adam looked at Adam and he said, oh my goodness, I'm naked. And Eve looked at Eve, I am naked. This is wrong. And they had this sense of self-consciousness. You say, why is this important? Because up until this point, they were God-centered. Up until this point, they were God-conscious. And then now all of a sudden, sin has entered the world, and now their focus is self-conscious. Now their focus is self-centered, and sometimes the more self-conscious you are, the more self-centered you are. And God comes into the garden, and what does God say? He says, you guys have messed up paradise. And you know what? It makes me mad. Why does it make me mad? Because they messed it up for me too. And they messed it up for you as well. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and God pronounces a curse on Satan. Listen to this, guys. It's these verses 14 and 15, Genesis chapter 3. God said, it says there, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Enmity is animosity, right? It's hatred. I will put enmity between you, that's the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring. You're like, Satan has offspring? Are you kidding me? Do you know any children of the devil today? At least one thought it was funny. Between your offspring and her offspring. And then keep reading there. Notice this. He. Go ahead. I know your grandmama told you don't write in the Bible. Go ahead and write this down. Write the word Jesus where he is. He will crush your head. 
Not, not, not only Jesus, but all that are, according to Paul's word, in Christ. All those that are in Jesus will crush your head. And you, Satan, look at what it says, you will strike his heel. Now, undoubtedly, I'm a lot more excited about this than you are. Do you see what is happening here? Genesis 3, the gospel. The gospel is not plan B. The gospel is not God saying, you know what, I thought you guys would work this whole thing out where you wouldn't sin. Oh, my goodness, you've sinned. What are we going to do now? Oh, let's do the God. No, right here. This is a messianic prophecy right here in Genesis chapter 3, and it's the first messianic prophecy, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. I'm just saying it was predicted. You say, why do you get excited about that? Here's why I get excited, and maybe you will. Some of you will never get excited about anything. But here's this. Just as he knew then, he knows your tomorrow. He knows your next week. He knows the next. Hey, listen. He knows all. And he is sovereign. And so it is happening here. Now let's fast forward thousands of years. There's one who's born of a woman. Seed of a woman. His name, Jesus. Why in the world do you think the Bible takes such particular pains to point out that Jesus was the Son of Man? Why do you think the Bible goes to such pains to say, yes, he was the seed of woman, the seed born of a woman? Why? It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And so now here's Jesus, Jesus, 33 years of age. Satan decides, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to put him to death. In fact, the Bible even says this, that it was Satan who entered Judas Iscariot's heart to betray Jesus. And I'm sure while Jesus was being scourged, Satan was there and Satan was saying, yes, I've got him. Yes, I'm going to kill him. I'm sure when they were driving the nails through Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet, Satan was there and he was saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to inflict that bite on the Son of God and it'll be his last. I I'm sure when they took the spear and they, and they stuck it into his side that Satan was there and he he was saying, yes, 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 I got him exactly where I want him. And when Jesus lifted up his head, and when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, and he died, I'm sure Satan must have said, oh, I've bitten his head off, right? He is done. I've killed him. He's dead. He's finished. Friend, hear me. When Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the devil. He was talking about Satan when he said it is finished because you and I both know that the death of Jesus Christ is not the end. We know that three days later, Jesus Christ came back alive forevermore and that he conquered death, death being the very domain of the devil. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, here is this serpent, Satan, and he's striking at Jesus, right? And Jesus took his heel and he crushed the very head of the serpent. You say, no, wait just a minute, Pastor. 
Are you saying that, the, that Satan's dead? No, I'm not saying that. He's not dead. He's very much alive. He is defeated. He, he has been rendered powerless. Jesus crushed his head. His authority has been rendered harmless. And if you are in Christ, you do not have to wait until you go through the cemetery to experience the benefits of Satan being rendered harmless and powerless. You say, I thought he was a roaring lion. He is. But when Jesus died and rose again, he lost every tooth he had and no longer does he have claws. He's a toothless, clawless lion. We used to live to next door to a neighbor and great family, sweet family. I came home one time and my back fence, I kid you not, the, our neighbor's dog had eaten a hole out of a wooden fence. And so I was talking to my friend. I'm like, man, I, I think your dog just ate a hole in our fence. And he said, well, I, I don't know how he can. He didn't have a tooth in his head. Come to find out, though, we watched him. He was eating our fence. But he would stay on the other side, and we let our dog out. And all of a sudden, this dog would run back and forth. And our dog would get scared, and our dog would run back. And I would say, I'd say, Sophie, why are you scared of that dog? He don't have any teeth. He's been rendered powerless. All he's got is a bark. Friends, the same thing is true when it comes to the devil himself. He's been rendered powerless. All he's got is a bark. He no longer has a bite. Now, now, go with me here, okay? I know I'm going a little bit further than some of you planned this morning, but, but I'm thankful to know that God knew we'd be here before we got here today. So I'll just go ahead. Let's go to Revelation 20, okay? This is what ultimately is going to happen to the devil. In verse 20, or excuse me, Revelation 20, and I saw an angel. Please hear me, no special angel. This is an ordinary angel because the emphasis is going to be on someone else. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. You say, well, now, who's the dragon? That's a symbol. That ancient serpent, that's a symbol. Who is the devil? And Satan. Now hear me. That's not a symbol. The devil is very much real. Keep reading. Bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and looked, excuse me, and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And this is going to be his ultimate destination. They will be tormented day and night forever. Is the devil still around today? Yes, he is still around today. And his influence is absolutely powerful, but he is a defeated foe. You say, Pastor, then, then when? When is it going to happen that Satan is underneath our feet and, and, and we're crushing the head of Satan? Well, if you know who you are in Christ, it's happening right now. 
this very moment. That right now he is under the feet of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Jesus Christ, everything that is under the feet of Jesus Christ is underneath your feet as well. Listen, right now, like it says right here in verse 19, if you'll be wise about good, simple, innocent about evil, obedient unto the Lord, you can participate. In this process of crushing, which means rendering harmless. Abolishing the authority of Satan in your life right now. Now don't miss what I'm saying here. Satan's defeat did not remove him from the picture. He's still very much with us. But his defeat, it actually assures our present domination of him. Here's what I mean. Satan is vanquished, but he's not vanished. Satan, Satan is present, but he's not prevailing. Satan is active, hear me, but he's not able to overcome us. Those that are in Christ. Sure, sure, there is a battle that is raging. There is a battle that is going on this morning. But listen to me. You've already won the victory if you're in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus has already won the victory. Hear me, guys. Hear me, church. Hear me, spiritual family. It's not that you and I are fighting for victory. According to God's Word, according to the work of Christ, we're fighting from victory. I'll explain it this way. I'll give you a story. A friend of mine sent this to me a few days ago, and I got interested in it, and I started doing a little bit of research, and I found the history behind this story. In the 19th century, there was a German artist by the name of Moritz Retsch. He painted a famous painting called Checkmate. Matter of fact, I think we've got a picture of it this morning. Can we throw that picture? Look at it right there. So in this picture, you can see the guy on the left that represents the devil. He's in the red cape and got the red feather coming out of his hat. And you can tell by his smugness that he's winning. You see the angel there on this side. You see a young man and his head is buried in his hands and he's distressed. The painting was a symbol. It was a picture if... The young man lost the game. The devil would gain his soul. And so throughout years, folks would come and they would look at this painting and they all agreed that the young man had lost. That he had no other move. Hence the name Checkmate. The devil is won. The devil has defeated you. True story, several years later, there was a world-class chess player, an American by the name of Paul Morphy. And he came across a reproduction of this painting at his friend's house. It was a social party, and they were there, and they were talking, and his friend, not having the original painting, but having a copy of it, he thought it would be pretty interesting to ask Morphy, this world-class chess player, to examine the board to see indeed if he agreed with what everyone else said. And he looked at it and studied it and he said, yeah, 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 I agree with the consensus. He's, he's lost the game. 
And then as the conversation moved on to another subject, this world-class chess player, Morphy was there, and he just, he continued to stare at the board. And then all of a sudden, he started screaming at the distressed young man in the picture. And he started screaming, and he started saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. The king has one more move. Don't get, friend, listen to me. Throughout the Bible, this game has been played out. The Israelites, they, they experienced momentary freedom. And as they were fleeing from Pharaoh and his armies, there they were. They come up against the Red Sea. And now they would be taken back into slavery. Now they would be carried back to the chains that bound them. They had no hope whatsoever, but the king still had one more move. If you remember, there was a giant by the name of Goliath. And he stood nine feet tall. And he was there. And he was making fun of God's people he was there making fun of God himself and he was saying send someone out to fight against me one-on-one -on -one will settle this once and for all and they sent out this little shepherd boy because no one else would go and here goes David to fight against this mighty champion with nothing but stones and a slingshot and it was all over except the king still had one more move if you remember Daniel was there and Daniel, he was told, you do not pray to Jehovah God, you pray to this wicked tyrant. And Daniel refused. And so as a result of his disobedience, they threw him in a hungry den of lions, thinking he would be torn asunder, right? He was going to become their lunch. He wasn't going to make it out. It was finished. It was done. There was no hope. He had been defeated. But the king still had one more move. And here is Jesus. He was was tortured church he was crucified church he was buried for three days there was no hope whatsoever for mankind we would forever be bound and and, and, and lost in our own sin and our own transgressions but the king still had one more move hey listen to me if you ever feel like life has you beat, don't forget the king has one more move. If you ever feel like you'll never amount to anything, that there's no hope, that your life is a failure, understand the king has one more move. If you ever feel like that you're out of options, that Satan has you trapped, that you've lost your hope, Jesus the king has one more move. If you're like, I'll never be the spouse that God wants me to be. I'll never be able to parent those kids in in the fashion that he wants. I'll never be able to be that child that is honoring unto him. Hear me today. The king has one more move. And that's the truth about the devil today. That he is still out there and the struggle's still going on, still temptation. You still got to resist the devil. But I'm here today to tell you that at the cross of Jesus Christ, the final move was made. And he is a defeated foe. Then why are you still trying to fight him on your own?
Why are you relying on yourself instead of the one that's rendered him? Jesus. If you if you fight him in the name of Jesus, you can smile as you stomp the head of Satan. I don't know where you are in life. I can't even begin to realize what's going on, but I'll tell you this. You have a father that's there. You have a father that loves you so much, he sent his son who paid the price and rendered that adversary powerless. Hey guys, this is Pastor Stephen Kyle, and I want to thank you for listening to this week's issue of the podcast called Unchangeable Truth. Let me encourage you as well, if you get a chance, go check out our website. It's Highland, H-I-L-A-N-D, Park, P-A-R-K, dot org. On that website, you'll learn more about our ministry at Highland Park Baptist Church. You can also listen to some previous sermons, which are archived for the previous year. And as well, if you ever find yourself in Panama City in person, come and check us out. Worship with us live at 2611 Highway 231 North. And we would also love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. If you got any questions regarding your relationship with Him, having faith in Him, or if this podcast has encouraged you, or you have other questions regarding the podcast, feel free, shoot us an email at podcast at highlandpark.org. As always, our prayer is that this podcast would point you to Jesus Christ, would increase your faith, and would help you as you mature daily in your walk with Jesus Christ. God bless.